Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and this interview is with Tony Dixon. Tony is a former RAF Canberra and F4 Phantom Navigator. This interview mainly focuses on flying the F4J UK with some great stories, details and also comparisons to the FGR2. So if you like what we do here, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview and also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to support and help us. Thank you very much and enjoy. So Tony, when did you become, uh, first become interested in aviation? Well I grew up just in a place called St Anne's on Sea, just south of Blackpool uh, and the approach to one of the runways was effectively down over our house. So I was always interested in aeroplanes, always wanted to join the Air Force. Uh, no real idea as to what, probably air traffic because you saw more aeroplanes then. Um, but I got a cadetship, so came here to Cranwell and uh, went to university for three years. Birmingham Air Squadron on chipmunks and bulldogs. Uh, then went quickly to Finningley, sorry, Cranwell for 16 weeks for officer training, quickly to Finningley, 14, weeks, uh, 14 months at Finningley. And, uh, and then I finished Finningley on a Friday and started on the uh, Cambro CU on the Monday. So lots of leave after 14 months, it was really good. Uh, so I went through the Cambro CU at Marham and Sculthorpe, strangely enough, because Marham's runway was being dug up. So it was, we were operating out of the American base there um, and then got posted to thir 13. Well, I knew I was going to be posted to 13. When I was at, uh, at Finningley, basically I was offered, normally you're told as a surprise where you're going, but because I was top of the course, uh, I was offered Canberra PR7s like this one behind me, uh, which was not the sharpest of aeroplanes in its role, but the most enjoyable and fulfilling because of what we did uh, and I, it was either that or go to Buccaneers uh, and I asked a few people they said yeah go to the Canberras go to the Canberras uh, and spent four years three and a half years on the uh, on the PR7 and saw it disband when it disbanded in January 82 um, great time some really wacky jobs um, and survey stuff uh, low level um, pictures of country houses some of the stuff like we did uh, when the queen was going to go anywhere we did some vertical pictures to see security boundaries and, and that sort of thing um, some very quite interesting ones um, then did a, a quick cork fast jet workup then went to the phantom ocu while the falklands was on um, bounced down to uh, watersham but uh, 23 disbanded on me uh, they went down to the Falklands then I went up to Lucas went on to treble one for three years then went out to Germany to do a, a ground tour as a simulator instructor we were at Bruggen all the aeroplanes were at Wildenrath because it was traditional in Germany to have the uh, simulators at a different place to where the aeroplanes were uh, however I did a lot of flying with 19 and 92 while I was out there so that was great fun uh, and then I came back to 74 in oh, was it August August 88 and uh, 74 weren't at Watersham at the time because Watersham's runway was being dug up uh, so I seem to be going to places where it, they weren't <laughs> operating so we started off at Honington uh, and eventually I think it was early yeah early 89 <coughs> excuse me uh, we went back to Watersham and spent three years uh, on the F4J stroke FGR2 we converted in Christmas 90 got the first 
FGR2 in December 1990 uh, and then converted completely to them in early 91 by which time I then went to the F3 uh, spent tour on 5 Squadron tour on the simulator again um, while I was on the simulator I joined the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight uh, and flew the Lancaster and the Dakota which was great fun absolutely great fun very fulfilling um, the whole, every trip was, was good you know, it was actually for a navigator probably more interesting to fly in the DAC okay. because it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only Dakota in the world that flies pilot navigator. Every other one has two pilots. When it was in service with the Air Force, there was a, uh, an area behind the pilots where the navigator sat, but for some reason that one didn't have it, uh, and it was pilot navigator. Uh, I don't think anybody's actually twigged this anywhere. <laughs> and I don't know whether it's legal or not. But that means, you know, I sat in the right-hand seat. Uh, you do a lot of work as the co-pilot in inverted commas, particularly starting the engines and all sorts of other bits and pieces, making all the radio calls, doing all the navigation. Uh, and that was, yeah, more fulfilling fun-wise than the Lancaster. The Lancaster was good. Um, traditional wise effectively doing all the fly paths because people just love it especially I mean we're in Lincolnshire well in fact no we're in Nottinghamshire but never mind uh, but Lincolnshire just love the Lancaster uh, and they're desperate for it to come back from Duxford at the moment yeah. uh, and then I left I went back to 29 Squadron which again disbanded on me at the time and went to I went back to 5 didn't make it back to the front line uh, and left I uh, then become became the editor of Airline World magazine did that for 14 years and then took partial retirement work for them for two years on a contract and a year ago we decided to finish completely and I'm effectively now an aviation consultant I'll do articles on airlines which is my speciality but I can also do articles on uh, military airplanes historic airplanes uh, any sort of airplanes you wish uh, and I'm basically retired and doing nothing it's good fun so in 88, something special happened. Can you tell us what this was? Yeah, I was posted back from uh, Bruggen, back to uh, Wattisham, to join the F4J squadron, uh, 74, Tigers. Tigers is, is really the big thing for them. Uh, they helped form the Tiger fraternity back... Uh, cool. When lightning days at Coltishall, effectively. Because we had an exchange officer on one of the... Phantom squadrons, or it might have been F-100 squadrons at Weathersfield, who was ex-Lightnings, and they decided to, to together they would form the Tiger Fraternity, which is huge, which still goes on, <clears throat> and it gives you a great camaraderie. The F-4J had been bought a few years earlier as a stopgap measure because of the Falklands commitment for the other Phantoms, because it was subtly different with initially all American internals, uh, helmets as you see from here, uh, straps for the ejection seats and everything else. It was second tourists plus only and that's why it couldn't go down the Falklands because you couldn't just send somebody down, hey this is an F4J and fly it. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually it converted, they put uh, British seats in, you had to change over to British helmets, British oxygen systems and, and everything else like that. It was good that way, but the aircraft was subtly different. It had J-79 engines, which had an air start system. 
No, you couldn't battery start it. You couldn't start it with a hooching like you could with all the normal uh, British Phantoms. Because it was designed initially, of course, for carrier use. And the carriers had air starts plugged into the deck. It made it difficult for us because we only bought 12 air start units and we had to put six of them at various bases around the country. So, Valley, all the master diversion airfields of old, Valley, Waddington, Lucas, there's one at Honington because that was our uh, primary diversion. There's one at Wildenrath in Germany. And these were great big things, the size of a big caravan with little wheels. And therefore, they weren't roadworthy, so you had to leave them where they were. We had six small ones, like Hoochins, like the, the standard power unit, which we had to trog from one, one house to another. And that's how you started the engines. It was a bit of a faff to start off with. Uh, if I've got time at the end, there's a great story about starting one at uh, Colmar in, uh, in France. <clears throat> Apart from that, the J79 was optimised for high level. Um, and therefore, at 30, 40,000 feet, it was great. The FGR2, initially because it was bought as a low-level bomber, the, the Spays are optimised low level. The main difference, and we did this when we converted over from F4Js to FGR2s, we did a trial, um, unofficial trial, sat at Blakeney Point in Norfolk, heading north, 250 feet, 250 knots, uh, and the call was reheat, go. The J79's reheat goes instantaneously, and the F4J, sorry, the Spay reheat takes a couple of seconds to ignite. So the J accelerated away from the FGR2, but then at 600 knots, the FGR2 overtook us. And then we called it a day at about 700, and we thought that was it. So that was the essential difference. It was good for combat, higher. The F if, you, if you did combat one against the other, as you came lower, the FGR2 improved. Um, the only slight problem was, was smoke, the older engine smoke. So what you used to do is as you came into combat, you put both of them into min reheat, and that gets rid of the smoke. It increases the fuel consumption slightly, but effectively, if you're in combat, you're in re some form of reheat most of the time. Did they have stages in reheat? That's just min to max. It's just a sliding scale, really. It was just you push, push the throttle and hit, hit the gate and just knocked it across into reheat, and then there was another reheat movement. So, uh, and it, uh, effectively from that, it was... It had different th different bits. We had slightly different uh, radar. We had a, a vastly different uh, radar warning receiver. Because if you look at FGR, uh, F4Js, everyone's got little nib intakes on the front, apart from Tango, the first one, which was a trials aeroplane. Um, and we had a, a different RHWR, which actually didn't work very well. It should have done, but when the, the aircraft were brought out the desert, which is where they'd been languishing for a while. They were all wired at different times. The wiring looms, therefore, were completely different. And if you're looking at a, an RHWR that reacts on microamps, if, the wire, if a wire is in a different place in this loom, a different microamp will show a different thing on the screen. Um, that's the other one about the colours. If you remember... There were at least three different colours F4Js. Um, that was basically because they were done in three batches. Um, the Americans, or I think it was a Greek firm that actually did it, didn't have the Air Force Grey. 
So they went across with the chart and went, yeah, well, that's about right. We'll try that. So they did <clears throat> four or five. They went, no, that's not right. So they did four or five more. Those were the duck egg blue ones. Uh, and then they did five more, which were sort of close. And, uh, and therefore, the, the F4Js were always different colours. Um, you got not, a favourite colour? No, not really. <laughs> no, I had my name on, on Tango eventually, so that ad was a greyish one, so that was all right. So how many Js did we actually uh, get? We had 15 um, out of 16. They dropped one off a of Chinook. Um, San Diego was across the bay from where it was, they were reworked, was across the bay from where they were stored, uh, and they were lifted up in a Chinook, uh, and one had one was gyroscopically unstable halfway across the bay, and the Chinook had to drop it. So they found another one <laughs> to do it that way. So could you tell us a bit about your conversion training from the FG1, FG2, FGR2? Um, it was quite simple because for a navigator, the radar was essentially the same. The cockpit isn't that much different. Um, we did a bit of ground school, read, read the books and see what happens then. Um, but the RHWR, as I say, was, was different. So there was a bit, bit to do that. But essentially the radar, you know, looking at a blip on the screen and locking on and doing all the other bits and pieces for that was the same. The missiles were the same. Uh, and therefore it was, it was reasonably simple. It's say just starting the engines was the fad. Yeah. Yeah. So the only real big difference was the engines? Yeah, essentially. There, there were little differences. Um, but for a, for a pilot, it was trying to start the things. Um, you needed this high-pressure air start, which gave you, I think it was 10 to 15% rotation before you could actually give it any fuel. And if you gave it the fuel too quickly, the tailgate temperature started going through the roof because effectively you had a fire in the back. Mm. Uh, and then you had to shut it down, wait for it to uh, to cool down, and then start again. So obviously you're holding the uh, uh, Tiger helmet. Yeah. Can you tell us about the equipment you have to wear with this? Uh, this, yeah, it was subtly different in as much as uh, it had a single visor, um, which the Air Force didn't like. It has a different oxygen system. It has a full face mask, which was nice. It was simple to uh, to pull off. Uh, and it and it looked cool basically, um, and looking uh, American flying uh, flying overalls were better than the British ones. I'm not saying the modern British ones now aren't good, but the American ones were pretty good. And you had a big oxygen system. This little connector at the end was a pain in the backside. Uh, it has two little connectors which actually move and they should move, but there was the problem because if you didn't get it right and it wore a bit, it moved. These things were sculpted to your head. So when you arrived on the squadron, you put a, like, basically like a, a sweat bone dome, thin mask on. They then poured um, plaster of Paris effectively over you. And then when it half set, you squeezed your head out of it. Then they put, they filled your headspace with your head in plaster paris that set and therefore they had a head for you then they fitted this to that head so this is my helmet nobody else could wear it because it wouldn't fit them uh, and therefore when we changed over to the british helmets we kept it 
Um, it's not. It, it looks quite roomy, but if you had a couple of um, big ear pieces and more padding in, uh, it was snug, but good. Uh, the only say that for safety's sake, it's got a single visor. Uh, British ones now have two visors. You have a clear visor down all the time, specifically if you're at low level. Um, but this was just a, a sun visor. The great thing about it is that if you pulled it down and then you tried to look at the radar, it was a problem because you couldn't. So you had it sort of half down, so you'd look. Top half was in sun and looking yeah. down at the radar. Um, so nice fit. Could you tell us about the paint scheme? Did you yeah. Use this? <clears throat> Yeah, I actually didn't have it done until after I'd stopped flying because in the back you're always looking around, looking ahead like this. Therefore, you're always touching the uh, the inner of the canopy. So effectively, you didn't have it... Uh, you, this would just get scraped. Some people had it done and then had it done again. Uh, and it was done by one of our uh, ops clerks who was into airbrushing. Mm -hmm. So basically when these finished, you got him to go and do it and you had it, you took it away with you. It's still on show at home. It's quite, it's quite impressive really. Yeah, and of course it's got full tiger stripes at the back. So when the um, Jays were delivered, did you have to have American crews to come over to train you on their system? No, all the Brits went over there, went over to San Diego for up to three months. Uh, and they did flying with American crews over there and for the conversion then they came across and converted uh i think it was the full squadron went across in bits and pieces there were three tiger three at least three tiger trails where they brought the airplanes back they tanked them back in two jumps san diego's west coast of america so it was at least two uh, and then they all got back to watersham they arrived with gray tails apart from one that had to, uh, it got stuck in the hangar at Goose Bay and uh, some minor snag. And the ground crew, because the, the lightnings all had black tails when we had them, the lightnings had disbanded in Tenga some 10, 12 years before. Uh, and the ground crew painted the tail black. It then arrived at, uh, during a Wattish and Families Day where the chief of the air staff was there and uh, the boss didn't know the colour of the uh, the tail until it landed he went mm, mm, okay um, do you like the colour of the tail sir and they guessed yes very nice so that was a tacit approval to have them all painted <laughs> black again <laughs> so how did the J fare in ACM against the FG1 and FGR2 <clears throat> the J79 engine is better at high level so if you did air combat, you, the higher you were, the better the J was. It could actually turn slightly better. And, but then the FGR2 brought it lower because of momentum and power and everything else. Uh, and the FGR2 started to in, increase. Now that's assuming that you could both pull the same amount of G. The F4J could pull more G than the FGR2. We used to fly what's called Bravo Fit, which is a centerline tank only. FGR2 used Charlie Fit, which is two Sergeant Fletcher tanks on the wings. Now, off the top of my head, the Sergeant Fletcher could pull 4G when it had any engine, when it had any fuel in it, four and a half when it didn't. The F4J centerline tank could pull five when it was had any en when any fuel in it, and five and a half when it didn't. Clean six, six and a half. You could do on both, just about. Now, 
I don't know how it worked. When the, the, you could fly the British FGR2 in Delta Fit, which is two Sergeant Fletchers and the center line. That center line had two and a half G when there was fuel in, three G empty. It's the same tank. I don't know how we got away with it, but some engineer, had, I don't know whether he got it from Americans or whatever, gave this five, five and a half G limit. It's the same tank, the same mounting, and therefore we flew Bravo Fit and we had a G better than an FGR2 at all times. <laughs> so how did the crews like the actual jet? Did they think it was better than the FGR2? Um, the jet was nicer. Uh, I'm not saying it was it was comfier to sit in. The uh, squadron basically made it. The fact it was a Tiger squadron. There were initially there were no first tourists on the squadron. Come 90, late 89, 90, we started getting first tourists on it, uh, and therefore everybody was older, more experienced. Um, you didn't have as much training to do because guys knew what they were doing. Good camaraderie because you'd probably met most of the guys before anyway. And it was just good to be on a Tiger Squadron. And that sort of helped it. The fact that, yeah, you could pull more G than anybody else. Uh, if this was at the time also when the F3, the F2, F3 was just coming into service. And that was not very good, mainly because it didn't have a radar that worked. The, there was a thought when the Falklands War started to send the F4J out to Saudi Arabia because the J79 is better hot and high. Um, sorry, not the Falklands War, the Gulf War. And it would have therefore worked better in hot climates. The unfortunate thing is we just sold the Saudis F3s and therefore we couldn't send the F4J uh, politically. It was good for the F3s in that way because a lot of modifications were put in, the radar was sorted, the RHWR was improved and worked, uh, the missile system worked, it maybe hadn't worked quite well earlier on. So it was great for the F3 to go. Um, I suppose it would have been nice taking the F4Js down to, down to Saudi, but it never happened. We, we stayed here and defended the realm. <laughs> So, did you ever go up like, against the NATO types, like the F-16, F-15s? You always did uh, ACMI, Air Combat Manoeuvre Instrumentation, uh, at Dechmimano in Sardinia. That was before BAE Systems built one in the North Sea. And invariably, when you did it in Dechi, you had dissimilar air combat training. So, yes, I mean, I remember early on, we, uh, I can't remember if it was the J or FGR2, we took on the Canadian F-104s. Their idea of combat was to come at you at 1.5 and fly straight through and go away and then come back you two minutes later at 1.5. Because the F4, well, the F1 F4 can't turn, let's face it. The F16 was very good. The F15s uh, were okay. They, we, I remember going out to Eilson um, to do a, a similar thing over there. And they just brought, brought in their AMRAMs. And their idea was to fly, fire an AMRAM at 30 miles and turn away so that they were way outside our range. And then they claimed a kill over the air and then the whole game was over. And we said, well, hang on, we turned away because the AMRAM basically goes into quiet mode and then wakes itself up after, after a while, comes back down again and finds you, assuming you've gone in a straight line. 
You don't go in a straight line. The thing, the Battle of Britain, never, you know, never fly more than 30 seconds yeah, in a straight line, yeah. you know, because you get shot. Yeah. And we didn't. Uh, and once the F-15 guys had worked this out, that the Amram wasn't the, uh, the, the, the be-all and end-all, we had some good times with them. You had different tactics. Uh, it was like flying against Harriers, for instance, when they used to do their viffing. They used oh, yeah. to slow down and just move around like this and then try and get their nose on you and to fire that when they had the aim, uh, Sidewinder AIM-9Ls. But you had to then for, therefore run away from them because the AIM-9L had a certain range in the stern. Uh, and it was just trying to find the tactic to beat them all. Um, the, ja- the Jaguar wasn't too bad for a while, so the, the, the Harrier was, was okay. F-16s, I mean, you can pull nine and a bit G. Uh, it's going to beat anything, yeah. effectively. Yeah. So could you talk us through a typical day on 74 Squadron or any squadron for that? Yeah, it's changed a lot now. You go on an F3 Squadron, um, well, what used to be an F3 Squadron, possibly on a a Typhoon Squadron. The the flight lead does all this preparation the day before. Takes a couple of hours sorting things out. You all then come in in the morning at least two hours before takeoff and uh, and do all the planning for that. Do the, the flight and then take an hour to debrief. F4s did it a lot simpler than that. The flight lead started his preparation two hours before takeoff. You then briefed everybody one hour before takeoff. It was a half hour brief, and then you walked half an hour before takeoff. Simple. A lot of the, uh, the, the sorties we did with basically SOP, standard operating procedures, you had a plan. Uh, and the, it was the same plan against low-level targets or if you had another plan for high-level targets. So you all knew what you were going to do, where you were going to sit in a formation, what you were going to do, this, that and the other. And therefore the sorties were relatively simple and you could actually fly twice a day. You could come in, you know, if, if you were on the first wave, you came in about 7 o'clock. Normal Met brief was, about, say, half past 8. Uh, so you do 7 o'clock, start briefing at, at 8 take off at 10, be down at half past 11, quick lunch, start briefing, get airborne again at 2 or 3, be back at 5, go on for tier medals. Um, busy day, must admit that was, two, if you did two. Um, once you got senior enough, you were either the duty pilot in the, uh, in the tower or the duty auth on the desk, or you'd do a simulator as well. So it was the normal, you would fly once and do something else, whether it be a simulator bit on the desk or bit in the tower that was sort of it um oh and just not chill out read the books that's what the, the qys qualified weapons instructor would love you to read the books <laughs> and then the flight commanders would love you to do all your secondary duties yeah. and be seen to be busy yeah. you couldn't be seen to be sat in the crew room doing nothing right uh, back in the canberra days there was a thing called uckers which was sort of like um a fighter version of ludo and you could go and play hookers, and then nobody would worry about that. Brilliant. But it's all changed now. Yeah. So you mentioned the simulator there. Was it the same one for the J as it was the um, FJ? Yes, we had to use the, the... There wasn't an F4J simulator. We used the FJR2 simulator at, uh, at Wattisham. The simulators were all static, i.e., uh, and there was no visual. So it was a cockpit, and it sat there and did nothing. And you... Effectively, it was an emergencies trainer. You could do intercepts, but 
you didn't learn anything from the intercept. You could do uh, electronic countermeasures because the simulator could reproduce perfectly what you should see if you're being jammed. When we flew against the cameras, T-17s, it was some, sometimes we didn't get what we asked for and, uh, and therefore you got different outlooks and different ways of doing it. So you could practice in the sim what it should happen and then if it didn't happen, you had to adapt slightly, which is probably very good. Mm. So, have you ever intercepted any Russians? Can you tell us some stories? Yeah, well, not. I can't remember that I did anywhere when I was on 74 because we had Southern Q on 74 at Watersham and Northern Q was at Lucas. Southern Q was only called upon when Northern Q were maxed out, i.e., when the Russians were busy. Uh, when I was up at Lucas on Treble One, yeah, we used to launch. QRA four or five times a week I mean it, make, it makes national news now when the typhoons go and, and get a Russian uh, we used to do it regularly, the bears used to come invariably there were bears then, now they're dead backfires and blackjacks yeah. um, but invariably it was bears they used to do their Cuba rotation where they used to go round from Murmansk, round the north and sometimes they went north of Iceland, sometimes they went south of Iceland and if we went south of Iceland in the Faroes Gap, we used to go up there and, uh, and set them on the way uh, well, we get launched for when they come back because the intelligence people could tell you when they'd launched out of Cuba mm-hmm. so they could work out when they were going to be yeah. back in radar cover again. Yeah. And he used to do the standard intercept. Like, I mean, you know, we com- people complain that the Russians have been intercepting our aeroplanes. That's all we did. You went and sat on the wing, waved at them, and then went away again. So could you explain the cockpit for us? The back seater was not supposed to see forward. In front of you is a framework which you had instruments on and it, it was exactly the same in the F3 in the end. You could see sideways uh, and you could see backwards but you had to sit in the right way to see backwards the right way. Um, your radar came out from between your knees and you pulled it up and then you had to lean over because the sun shone on a little disc about that big mm. flat screen. Some people had uh, tubes made that were about yay long plastic tubes and you looked at them like this um, bit impractical mm. uh, and, and therefore you just used put your hands up some people actually put a map over the top of the back co- over the cockpit to stop the sun coming in so you could see and then you just tore it down as you got closer this was for long range stuff yeah um, and yes it, it was cluttered the FGR2 I think Probably the QIs will pick me for this. It was either 176 or 177 circuit breakers down by your right knee. Some of which were out automatically. Some had colours on them. And effectively, something went wrong. You had to glance down and see which one was out. Now, if it was the wrong one, you had a little thing like a pencil with a little V in it. And you grabbed hold of that and you could reset the circuit breaker by pushing it in if it was one really down the bottom or you just got your toe and smacked it one um, and so that was that was down there on the left hand side um, most of the aeroplanes didn't have any it wasn't dual controlled so you're all on your own um, so you had a little bit of space on the left where you could put stuff not much uh, and a little bit on the right where all the uh, the, the uh, radios and the, the inertial navigation system on the FGR2 was there uh, and everything else but it was cramped when we flew ground crew invariably they were ill 
because there's a reputation for being ill. So the guys who went in assumed they were going to be ill and probably were, yeah. which, is, which is a great shame. It was actually very good. If you kept yourself busy, it wasn't a problem. It did get very hot um, because you've got perspex above you all the time. Yeah. Um, for combat, what you had to do is you, you did a head-on-head pass, effectively, to start off with, and you started moving. So you got the pilot to say, OK, which way, which side are you going to put him? And he said, right, he's going to go down the right-hand side. And then you turn, you, you go that way and then both turn. So as a big guy like me, as it got to about two or three miles, you'd have to shift your, yourself and get yourself in that way so that you could look up that way. If he then, because then you pull G and you couldn't move for a while because you haven't got the strength in here to pull yourself up. Mm-hmm. Because, and if then at the last minute you put you down the left hand side, you were knackered because the guy was up here. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you were down looking at the radar with your head down like that and you, went, and you got bounced by somebody, guy would pull three or four G and he'd go, Where are you? Where is he? And he'd go, I don't know. I've got my head down here. And you'd have to get your hand on the radar and push to get yourself back up again, which is quite difficult with, you know, with pulling four or five G. Yeah. And then you get yourself sorted out. Um, very much crew cooperation. It, it, it was vital. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you couldn't see a thing. Yeah. So this is probably a probably have lots, but do you have any memorable stories uh, while you were on the J? The best one was when we were we went down to Akuturi for an armour practice camp. Uh, we'd been tanked down there, but then Strike Command in its infinite wisdom decided that we'd stage back. We go, okay, well, the only place we could go to was Sigonella in Sardinia, US Navy base. Therefore, they have high pressure starts. We flew across in two flights of five and a four. Um, no, sorry, three threes in the end. Um, the Greeks are typically not very good at uh, speaking to you. Effectively, from saying bye-bye to Akaturi, we didn't uh, transmit, or well, we transmitted, but we never heard anybody until we were five miles out on Sigonella approach for the break on an emergency frequency, couldn't get anybody to answer it. Uh, and then, because Signella hadn't been told we were coming. So they put up nine Phantoms. They reckoned they didn't have much ramp space. It's an Orion base, you know. Um, and so we, we parked them all together, had to find some accommodation. The next day, they wreck, the Strike Command guys reckoned that we could get back to the UK in one hop. We all went, no. Can't do that. You could if you immediately got to 38,000 feet and there was no wind. The Italians don't let you do that. And there was a stonking great headwind of 120 knots. So we went, well, we'll see how far we can get. Uh, and we went off in three threes. It was a uh, typical early autumn day, thunderstorms all over the place. Uh, and the first three dropped into Lyon. Uh, and they said... Well, don't come here because there's a great big thunderstorm and we went to a place called Colmar uh, on the border between France and Germany in fact we were aiming for Baden-Baden because they had air, air, high pressure air starts they said no we're closed we went to Colmar so we dropped in at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon three aeroplanes the first guy I saw was a guy called Gandhi Paul Willis uh, who was on exchange and he says what are you doing here so we were just diverted in. 
we've just finished Tachyval. We're all in the bar. We said, well, you've got high-pressure air starts. No, we haven't. <laughs> so we, we managed this low-pressure air start. Um, a guy, one of their engineers came out and fixed something. Now, the low-pressure air start in, in a J is difficult. You push air through to turn the engines. As, lo- as soon as you get to about uh, 4%, 4 5%, you can start feeding fuel in. It should be 10% plus. If the fuel then bites quickly enough, it will turn the engine quicker. But if it doesn't bite quick enough, the tailgate temperature will go higher and higher. You effectively got to fire down the back. So you shut everything off. Now, I had to brief the, uh, the French fire chief. And we actually went to stand about 100 yards behind the aeroplane. And I said, there will be flames. There will be fire. Okay, okay. And we saw this. And from behind, there was this... Look, like the whole aircraft was in and he was just absolutely wetting himself trying to get the fire engine and said no no he's okay he's okay uh, and we did have a lot of flames come out of all three eventually we got them all started i i mean our our aircraft was started so i jumped on the wing fortunately we in fact no because we, we had uh, we had sidewinder rails so i jumped onto that jumped into the airplane and we got back french air traffic had finished for the day so we went into germany went through clutch uh, and then uh, came to Wattisham. Wattisham had all gone home. This was 7 o'clock on a Friday night. Fortunately, one of our flight commanders, we'd phoned him and said, we're coming. He'd got them all in, and we landed about 7 o'clock on the Friday night. The other six aeroplanes had gone to Leon, had just given up. They came home on a Monday. Um, but starting this thing, as I say, lots and lots of flames if you don't get a high-pressure yeah. air start. Interesting. Seven, well, I think it was 790... If it exceeded 790 TGT, uh, and you got up to about 850, and it was, oh no, sorry, <laughs> let's start again. So how many Phantom Squadrons were there at this time? Okay, Lucas had uh, treble on a 43. Coningsby had 228 OCU, which was just an OCU. They've renamed, since then, to keep uh, squadrons going, they renamed them right. as well as, so uh, 22... In fact, 56 ended up as an F3 OCU. Um, anyway, so it was the OCU. Uh, Wattisham had originally uh, 20... Sorry, there's OCU 29 and 5 at Coningsby. Then Wattisham had 23 and 56. 23 went down to the Falkland Islands, and then 74 arrived. And then in Germany, there was 19 and 92. Uh, the 23 went to the Falklands eventually became 1435 flight and 23 then became an AWAC squadron <laughs> as you do so was there any like right, um, jealousy between uh, <laughs> wanting to be on the J's there's oh to be on the J's yeah. nope, nobody openly admitted to it but I suspect people did mm. because it was different and because it was a Tiger squadron yeah um, there's always jealousy between squadrons on bases uh, I mean 74 and 56 have a a long time uh, relationship of uh, friendly rivalry because there's a famous thing called the Battle of Barking Creek back in 1940, 3940, when a 74, two 74 shot down a 56 Squadron Hurricane. <laughs> Unfortunately, the gentleman died, uh, but it was one of these things that happened early on in the war. Uh, people's aircraft recognition wasn't very good. 
uh, and uh, I think they were on the same base as well, which was the problem. Mm. Um, yeah. And therefore the rivalry exists. Mm -hmm. Trouble one and 43 had a similar rivalry, uh, 19 and 92. And so, yeah, I think on any RAF base, on any aeroplane, mm -hmm. there's a rivalry between the two squadrons. Mm -hmm. So overall, did you enjoy your time on the J? On the J, yes, it was, it was very interesting. So we did a conversion or we, a comparison. Uh, we flew two nine ships, uh, one before Christmas in 1990 with nine F4Js. Uh, I was actually flying an FGR2 doing a photo with a photo ship. Uh, and then in, we got some FGR2. So in January, we did another nine ship with five Js and four FGR2s. And again, I was sat in an FGR2 doing the, the photo ship on that. And that was good. Uh, I also took part in the 165 ship for the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Uh, we had all the Phantoms based at, uh, at Watersham for that. So I think we had something like 27 aeroplanes plus. Yeah, uh, we, we provided three aeroplanes. I think mo all the Phantom squadrons provided three aeroplanes, apart from the OCU, which provided four. And that gave us a box 16. So I and the F4Js were in the number four of the second, third and fourth boxes. Uh, and we did practices for that. And then we did the, uh, the actual thing on the day, overbooking Palace, turn right slightly. Then we did a fly past over Abingdon at the same time. Unfortunately, the leaders, we were, they were in box 16s for air defence. So the first one, first one was, uh, was F3s and then Hawks, Hawks and F4s, all stepped down slightly. The, F, the guy in the lead F3 decided, oh, we'll, we'll do a nice low one at Abingdon. Now, anybody knows that area, to the east of Abingdon, it's actually quite hilly. Uh, he dropped down, and everybody behind him had to drop lower and lower and lower. There's some very nice swimming pools in those <laughs> houses, because we must have gone over the crest of them, about 300 feet, with uh, what, 64 aeroplanes. <laughs> Good fun. And then we went north after that. Um, and basically they, they grounded all the flying clubs, all everything else. And this one gliding site hadn't got the NOTAM. And it had about 10 gliders up. And we went, oh my God. <laughs> they, got, they got severely bollocked and grounded for that, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, after actually, a question for me. Did you ever go through the map loop on the Phantom? Yes. Oh, you do it all the time. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really called the Mac Loop at that stage, uh, and that is may it was mainly used for Hawk stuff. Going down the A5 Valley was good uh, because at the far end of one we actually had to over rotate uh, to because there's two valleys and the second one slightly lower, and you go down over rotate to get round and pull. Mm -hmm. That was the technique for keeping low. If you go over a ridge, you balloon over the top. Mm -hmm. So if you, you had the ridge to go over, tactically, you invert and pull. Because mm -hmm. it's easy to pull the push. Mm -hmm. And then roll right, the right way up. Mm -hmm. uh, so low level was really good. Yeah, it was, uh, there's some lovely parts of northern Scotland where you can do it. Mm -hmm. Specifically over the Western Isles where there's you know, the sea and you've got islands higher. There's some really big cliffs by sky which are beautiful to see. Not bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, it is nice. So how many hours did you get on the J? Uh, I got about 800 on the J, 1,700 total on Phantoms. So it was about, yeah, about 800, 600 on FGR2, uh, 600 FG1s, 
and the rest on FGR2s. 4,000 total in my career. <laughs> so could you tell us a bit about your time on the Tornado? Yeah, at the end of 74, I came across to Coningsby in early 91, uh, and I went through the OCU, which was then to, to 9 OCU, uh, and then went to 5 Squadron. It's a quantum leap, basically, for F3 from the, the, the Phantom in technology, in ability to track targets and everything else. The F3 benefited very well from the Gulf War because a lot of money was put into it that was badly needed to improve the systems. And uh, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just a quantum leap. It's now been another quantum leap from the Tornado to the Typhoon where everything's done automatically. Uh, it was still yeah, it was pretty good. The, the cockpit was bigger roomier you could you could do a lot more the capability was uh, was good the fact that it had swing wing meant it was good at slow speeds and good at high speeds so What's yeah conversion training like it was like any ocu you yeah. did about uh, five six weeks ground school uh, and then ended up with a load of simulators on that then went flying and continued to do simulators for each stage of the flying so you did a simulator and then did practice it in the air uh, it was about 12, 14 weeks, I think, something like that. For the and your role at this point was the same as on the phone? Absolutely the same. Yeah. yeah, it just took, you know, it was the next stage. But they said the navigator picks up the contact on the, on the radar. Initially, that was independently of everybody else. Then when the aircraft got what's called Link 16, it was a, a data link from an AWACS, and the AWACS could transmit its, pa- its radar picture to you and show you where the target is. You then have to direct the radar onto it, or you could auto, the radar would automatically do it, as it does in the Typhoon now. Uh, and you, basically, the pilot just pulls the trigger. And how did the cockpits differ, coming from the fan? You could see a lot more. Certainly, there, there, are, there seems to be a lot more uh, perspex vertically, which meant you could sit higher up, and therefore you could see down a lot more. In the Phantom, you sort of sat in a well, and effectively level was about as low as you could get without turning the aeroplane round. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see from that, you've got the front of the engine, so that sticks out and you were, you're, you're a bit stuck. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a bit about Five Squadron? Five Squadron is one of the original squadrons. Um, curiously, now it's gone to Sentinels. Um, yeah, why is that? Basically, the older the squadron number or the, the smaller the squadron number, the more tradition there is in, therefore they want to keep it, and there isn't physically enough squadrons in the Air Force now. Okay. So that's why 23 Squadron was going to be disbanded completely, but it went to the AWACS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 8 Squadron is... Well, it had 8 and 23, but I think it's changed now to something else. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where the, the squadron number's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 5 has a, a good history of... of all sorts of types of aeroplanes. We had lightnings as well. Oh yes, yeah. Most, I think just about all of the um, Phantom squadrons and Tornado squadrons were lightning squadrons originally. Okay, yeah. yeah. And how long were you on the F3 for? Started in 91, finished in 99, so eight years. Did uh, three years on Fire Squadron, went to the simulator, did three years on the simulator and then went back through the OCU again and spent a short time on 29 before it disbanded then back onto five where it was deemed I was getting too old. (laughs) (laughs) So did you enjoy your time on the F3? Yes, yes. Um, It wasn't harder work. It's more serious work. It has gone very, very serious now. 
because we've been involved in shooting wars. Um, back in early F4 days, it was, I think it was more light-hearted, you had more spare time and therefore you had more time to enjoy yourself. Now it is uh, hard work. Uh, and very, very serious hard work. Sounds like you had the best times there. Oh, yeah, well, you talk to any of the Phantom guys who went to tornadoes, they will all agree. <laughs> so, you also were on B uh, BBMF. Could you yeah. tell us about this? BBMF, unlike the Reds, is purely part-time for the aircrew. You had to be, at Con in those days, either at Coningsby or at Cranwell, and on a ground tour, because you couldn't be on a, on a, a flying tour. Although... Technically, being a, an OCU instructor on the uh, on the F3 was okay. I was on the same. There were other guys who were on uh, ops, and was chosen because you did have to be chosen in '95, and did five full seasons flying the Lancaster and the Dakota. Is that normal? Uh, no, because normally you only do a ground tour for three years. You see, but then I went back through the OCU, uh, and then went back onto a squadron. Was actually on. BBMF at the same time because I was trying to push the system because I could see that we were going to be short of people uh, without going elsewhere to get people in. Now they have guys from Hercules, uh, from A330s, from A400s coming across up for a week to fly the bombers and, and the, the DAC, uh, which isn't the best thing to do, to be quite honest. No. And it, I don't see how they can continue that in the future with a reduction in manpower. But it was great. We, we did some really good uh, fly pass. I dropped the poppies down the mile in 95 for VJ Day. I'd also I'd flown over uh, the mile in the uh, VE Day celebrations in the Dakota as well. Uh, I'd done three or four uh, Queen's birthday fly pass in the DAC and the Lank. Been across to Holland for the uh, Manor celebrations at the start of May. Basically, if people don't know about that, in May 1945, April, May 1945, the Dutch people were starving. It had been a bad winter. When we attacked through D-Day, we missed Holland out deliberately to cut the Germans off to make them surrender. They didn't. Um, and there was no... But they weren't resupplying, so there was no food, no nothing. And one day, apparently, the high command in the UK phoned up the high command in Berlin. Now listen to that again. From 1945, we were at war, we phoned them up. Via Portugal, apparently, because Portugal, of course, was a neutral country, and therefore the phone systems were working. And the basically words were, we're going to fly 800 Lancasters and 500 Flying Fortresses and drop food over Holland, and we want your assurances that you're not going to shoot at us. And they said, well, we can't do that because we don't, are in contact with everybody and they said okay well if you don't we will bomb Berlin with another thousand bomber raid I've never heard that before yeah uh, and so it was never promised that they weren't going to get shot at but they went ahead with it three times I think uh, and the guns followed them they dropped on three or four different places they dropped big parcels about yay big full of food unfortunately I think about 25 Dutch people were killed because what happened is as, as the first food parcel arrived they went to grab it and they were told wait until all the aeroplanes and they were actually taken out by other food parcels being dropped uh, and they say 800 lanks and 500 fortresses twice or three times and that's why the Dutch have a national day at the start of May 
and it was called Operation Manor, Food from Heaven. Education for everybody. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was very, it was an honour. It's it's a yeah. great honour to go over to Holland still. Yeah. And I've met a, um, a a Dutch general, and he says I was four then, and I was eating fl- eating flower bulbs to survive. <laughs> Absolutely so, frightening. Yeah. So on a more lighter note, I suppose. <laughs> um, do you have a favourite between the Lank and the Dakota? For tradition, it has to be the Lancaster. But for operating the Dakota, because I believe we're the only aircraft in the world that flies pilot navigator. All the others fly two pilots. Uh, and sitting in the right-hand seat of the DAC is busy, hard work. It, it, starting the engines, it requires two people because of the throttles and, and various bits of the switches. You need more than two hands, yeah. effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you lower the flaps, you lower the undercarriage. The undercarriage is actually down by your feet. And therefore, the pilot has to bend down, get out of your eyesight, and bend up again to release this lever. And he can't do it. So the navigator has to do it. The flap selection is on the navigator or the right-hand seats side of it. So you have to do flaps, undercarriage, cow flaps for the, everything else, and watch the engine start. And as a job, it was great fun. And what we did in the Dakota, although it was a full display aeroplane, was more fun mm-hmm. rather than more tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you've, you've got to balance them up between yeah. them. So did you overall do you enjoy your time at the DPF? Yes, yeah. uh, outstanding. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding. Did you do it uh, again? Yes, yeah. Oh. And it was good that we could get uh, the wives involved. Effectively what we did when we, we came back on a Sunday afternoon, everybody effectively came back about four o'clock. And we used to have barbecues you get the girls who'd come down early, set the barbies up, the grand crew who were based there, and we'd have a quick barbecue, yeah, a couple of beers before we go home. Sounds like a nice life in the Oh, it was. It was good. It was good. So, Tony, do you have any hobbies? Uh, I enjoy golf. Now, I've when I left the Air Force, I became the editor of Airliner World magazine for 14 years. I then went part-time with them for two years, and in the last year, I've been an independent aviation consultant doing military stuff, historic stuff uh, and uh, obviously continuing my civilian bits. I've still got lots of contacts with airlines and stuff. Uh, that doesn't take up that much time now. Uh, so I go play golf, I go fishing, I'm a rugby referee during the winter time. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an old thing people say about when you're retired, you never, find, you never know how you found time to work. And it's very, very true. You... you Phil, I do some voluntary work here and there, uh, and yeah, you, you do things slower. It's difficult slowing down. Mm. It really is. You think I need to do so. I've got to do something yeah. today. Uh, when you don't, but then your wife says, "Well, yes, you do." <laughs> <laughs> I have this list that I would like you to do today. Yes, dear. <laughs> so, do you have a favourite tipple? Um, gin. Beer, beer as well, but yeah, and I, I think gin's coming in nowadays. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's a kids' drink, yeah. Uh, and I think Air Force traditionally have a gin and tonic on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. You know that that's thing that happens. Do you have a favourite aircraft? <laughs> that's a good one. The one favourite of mine, the BBMF nearly got, which is the Mosquito. Ah, I think BAE Systems were flying the Mosquito. Uh, and they were ha- they were using basically jet stream pilots to display the aeroplane, and they thought, 
maybe not a good idea, and they were going to donate the aeroplane to BBMF. Uh, and that would have been outstanding oh, for, yeah. for a navigator to fly either the Lancaster, the Dakota, or the Mosquito. Yeah. Unfortunately, a guy crashed it and was killed. Uh, and But it's got two Merlin engines. It can do 420, 450 knots at low level. It's a stealth aeroplane because it's wood. You know, you think, oh, really? That looks great. That was, and, it, and it looks are just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever get to air shows? I do try and go. I used to go to Waddington regularly. Um, I'm not going to go to Scampton because I think it's going to be a bit of a problem getting in, to be quite honest. Um, and I don't go to as many as I ought to. With BBMF, you used to get in because you flew in. Uh, and some air shows can be a nightmare to get in car parking-wise. Yeah. I prefer some of the small ones. I know the guy, there's a guy called Dave Poyle who runs the Children in Need air show at Little Gransden. Okay. And he's done sterling work. Uh, he and myself and a guy called Robbie Shaw, who's quite a, a well-known aviation photographer, when we were at Witten, we organised an air display. It was supposed to be a station families day. We we did a two and a half hour flying display, Brilliant. Uh, and that was really good fun to do. That was back in eighty one. Got a question from a viewer: the J model or FG one, FGR two? Which one? Was <laughs> the J. The J. The J. All the time. Yeah. The FG one was was. <laughs> it's a great idea to have a carrier based aeroplane that's got no inertial navigation system. It's got TACAN. TACAN's good for about 160 miles. An aircraft carrier has TACAN. So you don't have to go more than 100 because you're fleet defence. So you put it in the north of the UK and send it off on QRA three or 400 miles from the nearest TACAN station where you've got this thing called an air position indicator. Uh, and you, you rely on winds that you've put in, which are totally wrong. And you can get completely lost, and some people did. Fortunately, there was the, the Pharaohs on radar shows up as a T, and if you're sitting on cap with a bear, or waiting for bears to come down, you're always looking at it every two or three minutes. So you could take a, a range and bearing, radar range and bearing, and work out roughly where you are, and then update your air position indicator for that position. So you weren't going to be far out based on the wind. Um, I know of one guy who I won't, no, won't name, who had to throw all his missiles off because he got so far out west that he couldn't get home with the weight of stuff he had on. And I think he dumped the tanks as well. And that was the only way he got back to Lossie. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Never. Never. It's great fun. I mean, when I went to Airliner World, I now, as opposed to sitting in the back of one of these things where it's all cramped and you're in a, an immersion suit... You know, if you're, like, if you're a rubber fetishist, it's wonderful in the wintertime. And now I sit mainly in, in business class because the airline I'm doing the feature on has paid for your flight. Uh, somebody's providing you with a gin and tonic and you're going to sunny places. Well, absolutely. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews, and much more. 
And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.